Welcome to the Spirited Advocate podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Welcome, listeners and viewers, to this week's Spirited Advocate podcast. I'm your host this week, your guest host, Christine Lacasho, the Chief of Public Policy at Discus, stepping in for Chris Wonger. Happy that you're joining us here this week. Um, And I have the privilege of talking uh, with Jeff Weiss, a partner at uh, Steptoe, and who's also co-chair of the International Trade Policy Practice and leader of the firm's supply chain team. And so uh, happy to have this uh, policy discussion with Jeff today on some key issues that are impacting all of us and eager to hear from him and learn from his expertise and years of working in the government and now in the private sector. And just um, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for joining us. Thanks, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. So just briefly about Jeff, I'll I'll try to be very brief about this, uh, but you have a long and distinguished career uh, spending at least 15 years in in the government and senior policy and diplomatic uh, political roles in the U.S. government, including at the White House, uh, the Office of the United States Trade Representative, which is where you and I first first met uh, many years ago, working on some very detailed um, uh, trade policy issues impacting the spirits industry, uh, as well as uh, at Commerce. Um, at Commerce, you served as Deputy Director for Policy and Strategic Planning. At one point, you were also a Senior Advisor to the Secretary on a wide range of economic policy issues and supply chain issues, which is a topic we will delve deep into today. Uh, You also are the lead negotiator on U.S. digital economy policy issues and port and supply chain issues, Um, hosted talks with China in 2016, um, developed the U.S. strategy for international cybersecurity uh, standardization, and then uh, very interestingly, uh, which I think is probably something a lot of people outside of the Beltway don't know, uh, but the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at the White House, you, you were the associate administrator there, um, and that's part of the Office of Management and Budget, and I think um, that's a, a, a very influential uh, department within the federal government. Probably most people don't, don't know about outside of the Beltway, but that is certainly the central authority for the, re- the review of uh, executive branch regulations. So it plays a key, key role um, in the development of regulations. So with all that, uh, let me kick it off and let's talk about supply chain because everybody's talking about supply chain these this day, these days, um, especially as we approach the holidays and people are concerned about supply chain and given your role and leading the, the, the supply chain team at Stepco, Stepto, sorry, uh, can you offer some insights on some of the issues that your clients are facing in regards to the supply chain challenges right now? Sure. And, and that's actually uh, our, our mantra um, at the supply chain team is that it's all supply chain these days. Um, so it, it, uh, it really is uh, affecting everyone. Um, I mean, I think everyone uh, across industries facing, you know, a lot of the same issues are facing delays, not knowing where their merchandise is. Um, in some cases, they're unable to access containers um, and they have concerns over the different uh, charges that detention and demerge charges at ports. Uh, of course, the backup um, at the ports of LA and Long Beach uh, those, that, that backup is un, unprecedented. Uh, between 30 and 40% of the container traffic goes th- through those uh, two ports. Last I checked, there were 71 ships waiting to unload. I think it's probably more than that now. It, it changes all the time. Um, and um, everything is connected. 
Um, so if you have a, a delay in one mode, it's going to ev eventually hit other modes. Um, and um, not only do you have the backup at the ports, but you have uh, warehouses in Southern California that are full. Um, and um, there's a, a rail line that carries most of the containers from Southern California to Chicago. In Chicago, they said, we can't take any more containers because the rail yards are full. Um, ships get diverted from LA Long Beach to other ports um, like Oakland and then also on the East Coast like Savannah and then they get backed up. Um, and you know, one port director said that you know, they have really, really large companies calling them every day saying, is my stuff there? Um, <laughs> they don't know, there's just not a lot of visibility um, and that's a huge problem. And that's actually, I think, one of the biggest causes of the current, of the current congestion issue. And so what, uh, that's really interesting, you know, to kind of hear some of the details about some of these challenges. Um, what, and how are you advising your clients to, to deal with this? I mean, what, what can businesses do? You know, it's funny, like I'm one of the few people that I was at USTR for a long time, but then I went to commerce and went, wound up working on broader commerce, uh, domestic commerce related issues, inclu including port issues. So I'm a little bit dangerous in, in both worlds. And sometimes I can, I can connect the dots between them. Um, you know, short term, you know, it, it's a very difficult situation. Um, there's not a lot. And I've, I've been, you know, in contact with various agencies talking about these issues. There's not a lot the administration can do short term absent, you know, convening different groups and urging them to work harder to resolve these issues. It's very similar to, you know, when I was in government and we had um, the Hanjin shipping line go back, go bankrupt in 2016. And I think there were 91 ships that couldn't come into port. Uh, which almost caused uh, economic uh, collapse in the summer of 2016 that I think a lot of people didn't know about. Um, and um, there are just very few tools, which I think is partly the reason why there's the push for new legislation, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later. Um, but, you know, what I would advise companies to do is, you know, this is not, this is the maybe the worst supply chain crisis we've had, but it, it won't be the last one. And there have been plenty of them. Um, you know, just talking to White House and other colleagues over the last couple of weeks, I've said, you know, when I was doing this for Secretary Pritzker, we had two crises in three years. You're going to continue to have these crises. And so don't let a good crisis go to waste. Step in and try to solve the systemic problems. Now, clearly, the, the one of the big drivers of this is changes in consumer demand. Mm -hmm. and, right? We're all home due to COVID or we're all buying lots of stuff. Um, and so that that's obviously a huge driver that obviously the, you know, the US China tariffs, um, that was that's a, a cause as well. Um, but the question is, you know, how do we get out of this? Um, and how do we um, uh, also um, make it less likely we'll be in this position in the future? And we have to have and, and the White House has talked about this, we need greater data sharing within the supply chain and industry best practices across the supply chain. Um, and I mean, you have the same terms that have different meanings at different terminals, at different ports, at different modes. You have digital tools being in, in use at different terminals that that, um, that 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 the systems don't talk to each other. 
um, and you have standards that are that have been developed. And you know, I'm a standards person, but there are standards that have been developed that are proprietary standards. Um, and so they're not international standards. They're certainly not supply chain wide standards. Um, and so um, a lot of supply chain professionals spend their time on the phone trying to figure out like everything's done by phone. Um, you know, like working out where's my stuff? Can we move it here? Can I get a container? This is all being done uh, in a very uh, 20th century way when we have 21st century tools available. Um, and so like one of the things I'm doing is trying to push the administration to uh, to come up with innovative ways of incentivizing um, the supply chain to move towards interoperable uh, data standards and terminology standards. And I mm. think that could help in the long term try to make this kind of situation less likely to happen. And what what that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And I know we've done a lot of work on on standards generally. I mean, is there um, I mean, where where would they go? And it, I mean, is this a global problem? This is not just a US problem, right? It is a global problem. So is there an incentive globally for the major um, major major countries that are being impacted by this to kind of get to the table and hammer something like that out. So I think that um, the problem here is worse, and we're, we're such we're so large that we're causing problems in other markets because mm -hmm. when you have backups anywhere, you have eventually eventually it infects every other mode because everything is connected. Um, so. But I also think that the U.S. economy is large enough that the administration said, we really want to see this happen, um, that they could do it. Now, I think what we don't want to see is the government take over supply chains and say, we're going to create this new information sharing system. We want them to incentivize the private sector to work together. They're mm -hmm. using carrots. And so that's the approach that we're trying to, to push them to do. And there are, there are ways that this can be done. Um, so the FAA has an information sharing system on safety data that is run by a nonprofit. Um, and the government does not get um, raw data from supply chain actors in the aviation space. They get aggregated anonymized data from a nonprofit. So this can actually work. Um, and then you can get all this data as a company. And if you're a technology provider, uh, if you give supply chain visibility tools to clients, you'll get a much more robust data set that you can create better products with. Mm. Um, but it, this has to remain in private sector hands to ensure that we still have innovate, innovation, but also efficiency. We don't yeah. want another government system and we don't want people to have to change the systems they're using now. We just want to make sure it's interoperable and to have everyone agree on what certain, what certain terms mean. And yes, right. this, has to, this has to be global, um, which is why we're trying to use standards, voluntary consensus standards, because it, that, that way you can bring in everyone. So for example, you can't do this without China. Right? I mean, that, that's where there's, there's a huge volume of trade. So you need Chinese interests. You, you also need interests from trusted trading partners as well. And a, a consensus standards process can do that. Mm -hmm. Really, that's really interesting. So um, to see kind of what, what the role the government can play versus the private sector and you know who needs to drive it. It's, um, I hadn't heard that before. So that's a really interesting uh, approach. Um, now we are looking at this one piece of legislation, and I wanted to get your take on uh, on that, the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021, which has about I think 67 co-sponsors right now. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that, and how will that kind of help this issue? Oh, I should. One other thing I should have mentioned: um, 
221% uh, duties on uh, imports of chassis <laughs> from China. Um, at the current moment, probably not helpful given that we don't produce enough uh, domestically. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think, you know, for that to, for that to be unwound, the administration would need to change, really need to change course on that in a way they, that I haven't seen them do. Um, I think they're open to it, uh, but I think there would need to be stakeholders approaching them with a potential solution. But I think they understand that that's not helpful. But uh, again, we're all operating in silos and we all have our different statutory authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, 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 are, there are creative solutions around any issue uh, if you put a coalition together and you have a, a solution. Uh, because clearly we would like to have greater manufacturing of chassis domestically from a supply chain resilience standpoint. Um, so I think there's a way to get at that. But um, in terms of the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, um, and I actually had um, Congressman Johnson on my supply chain show a couple of weeks ago to talk about the, the bill. Um, and um, there is bipartisan support, as you know, uh, a large number of associations, uh, I think primarily representing shippers, sent a letter um, in support. It definitely seems more probable than not um, that it's going to pass. Uh, as you know, in two drivers of the bill are disputes over the late fees charged to shippers by ocean carriers and, and marine terminal operators, right, detention, demerge, and then the inability of some companies, um, largely in the ag space, but not just in the ag space, to get their goods to overseas market um, due to, um, you know, a shortage of available containers. Um, you know, normally, you probably, a lot of people probably aren't aware of this, but in a, normally before pre-pandemic, 50% of the containers going back to Asia from the West Coast were empty, empty, empty containers, empties as they're called. Um, that was that was normal. Now, you know, uh, it's 70, closer to 75%. Wow. Now, clearly that is not politically sustainable. Um, you know, Gene Soroka, who's the head of the Port of LA, who's kind of my go-to source on everything happening, said, you know, said, look, you know, our, our, our biggest export these days is air. Uh, <laughs> and and he also recognizes like this is something that we we got to get a hold of. Um, the question is, um, you know, how's how best to do that? Um, I have I have clients on both sides of this issue. I will say that the what the bill attempts to do is give FMC additional authorities to write and enforce rules on on what's reasonable market behavior, what's reasonable business practices. Um, this is really complicated. This is this is not going to be an easy thing to do. Um, you know, if, if you're an ocean container line and you can get $30,000 for a container to ship a container from China to the West coast and, bef and before the pandemic, it was $2,000, you know, are you going to, who's going to tell them it's unreasonable to, to quickly get their container back so they can get to Asia to get the $30,000 fee. Um, that's, that's one school of thought. Right, but then you have perishable goods that need to get to market, and so another school of thought is: well, those need to be prioritized because the the value you have billions of dollars of goods that can't make it to market, um, and so we need to resolve that issue. And so the question is: how do we do that? Maybe this is one tool. Um, the other problem is FMC itself. Believe it or not, only 130 people in that entire agency. So understaffed, under-resourced, that's got to be a part of the solution as well, because I mean, I think they have fewer than 10 investigators on all of these unreasonable uh, 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 investigations on unreasonable charges. Uh, 
Um, so the bottom line again is we need to avoid getting getting in these types of situations in the first place. Yeah. Um, right now it's just we're so locked up. And again, I you know, greater visibility end to end across the supply chain. I think that's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. And so switching to a piece of legislation that did pass, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, which we've all heard quite a bit about. Um and you know, do, does contain some things in there to help, I think, address this. And I wonder if you could speak to some of that. And you know, I think as as we're thinking about we're entering the holiday season, right? You know, right. are we going to see what what kind of issues are we going to see as we enter the holiday season? And you know, how how is that going to impact all of this too? So, but specifically on the infrastructure bill, um, how, how will that help us uh, address some of these issues, and how quickly? Well, long term, it'll definitely help, and it's it's necessary. The law invest would uh, invest uh, seventeen billion dollars in port infrastructure and waterways, twenty five billion in airports, and so that's going to help uh, with repairs and maintenance and congestion reduction. Uh, there's also money to drive the use of low carbon technologies, um, trucks. We need to seventy percent of 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 um, goods movement is done within the U.S. is done by trucks. Administration points out you have 45,000 bridges in poor condition, one in five miles of highways and major roads in poor condition. Um, and so the bill invests 110 billion in additional funding to repair roads and bridges. Um, so that's really important, but it's gonna take a lot of time for those investments to pay off um, because you need to get uh, permits and then you actually need to um, to build everything. Um, but you know, again, this needs to happen now because you know, under Executive Order 14017 and some of the other legislation coming, and 14017 is the America Supply Chain Executive Order, we're, we're reshoring semiconductors, we're reshoring high-capacity batteries, the solar supply chain. You're going to need chemical industry output to increase substantially to support all of that. So you're going to have a lot more stuff moving through the system. And so we're going to need that extra physical capacity within the system or the conditions we're seeing today are going to become a new normal. We don't want that to happen. Um, so we we definitely need this for the future, but we also need to make more efficient use of existing capacity, um, which is why you need the data sharing. Because anytime you have a berth where you don't have loading and unloading, you have, you have containers sitting on chassis in a parking lot of a retailer somewhere that's not being used, um, you know, time is money. Um, and so we need to we need to deal with that. Uh, short term, I don't think we're going to see uh, improvement for the holiday season. Uh, I think this is going to take a long time to work out. I think most analysts are predicting, you know, summer 2022 before we start to see meaningful relief. So unfortunately, um, hopefully you've already ordered your Christmas gifts. Um, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble. Santa's going to be in trouble at my house. <laughs> Yeah, well, definitely, definitely get cracking on that soon. Um, I've, I've, well, I've had success I, recently. I, so. I guess I just have to go to a, go to a store and shop in person. Um, so let's switch over and talk a little bit about trade policy again. That that's how you and I originally met uh, when you were working as a negotiator at the Office of the United States Trade Representative, which is part of the executive branch. Um, and Jeff, you did a lot of work um, on behalf of the spirits industry back back then, and you know helped us open markets and address you know some serious issues. So, 
But I want to talk about something very recent um, and something that our industry has cared significantly about and continues to care about, but um, the recent US-EU deal uh, on Section 232, which is paving the way for the lifting of the tariffs on American whiskeys to the EU market, which have been in place since June 2018. We've been living and breathing these horrible tariffs on our exports for, for quite some time. So I, I thought we just, you know, you know, take a step back and get your insights on the significance of this deal. Um, and, you know, both from your time as a negotiator, you know, how important, you know, having you've seen it from from the inside, you know, and, and how how much work it takes to come up with these kind of deals. But then also uh, from your perspective now, uh, representing the, the private sector. So any insights or thoughts you'd, you'd like to share on that would be great. Well, I'm still very proud that I was named a Kentucky Colonel uh, for, for, for the, the yep. work I did. <laughs> um, so that's that's a pretty cool honor. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously this is gonna, this is very significant from a commercial perspective, including for the spirits industry. Um, I guess you know, putting my USTR slash USG hat, you know, back on for a moment. Um, you know, my guess is that a few things are driving this. Um, you know, one effort is one is probably this that this is an effort to to help stem inflation pressures on you know inflationary pressures, which endangers the administration and democratic congressional majorities. Um, you know, another is it's an effort to walk back tariffs when you can uh, against trading partners other than China at least to try to get them on side so as to more effectively confront um, you know Chinese behavior that the administration finds problematic. Um, you know, third, I think. I think Ambassador Tai's view is that tariffs should be used more strategically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, since you know, unrelated industries and consumers wind up paying the price, and history shows that they frequently haven't been effective at changing the behavior that administrations want to change, and they just sort of get baked in, uh, and they last forever. Um, so uh, I, I think some would probably say, in, in a way, it's a bad precedent that that you agreed to this. Given that there's going to be a TRQ in place, um, I think that you said, "Well, this is just an interim deal." But I, I think that you kind of understood that. Look, this is the best the administration was going to be able to do for the moment, given the political constraints, uh, and that the tariffs were not the Biden administration's idea to begin with, uh, and no one wanted more tariffs right now. So yeah. I think that was pr- probably what went into this. Mm-hmm. How soon do you think? Um they can work out a similar deal with, with the UK and, and others, other countries that you know, object to the application of these tariffs. I mean, I would imagine they could reach deal with the UK within, I don't know, within six months. I mean, assuming that the, maybe sooner, I mean, assumes that assumes the UK is willing to do something similar. I mean, I think, um, you know, and, and there could be different circumstances, but, you know, publicly what the ambassador has said is, you know, each negotiation is different. Each bilateral relationship is different. The way USTR operates is that you know they're likely going to go to them with the same the same basic terms, um, and the EU is going to be watching very carefully to make sure that the UK doesn't get better terms than they did. Um, Japan, they're talking to them as well. So I would guess at the end of the day, they'd be pretty similar. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts as you look at this administration and what they're trying to achieve with trade policy? I mean, what, what, where do you see them going in the next year or two in terms of um, additional efforts on the trade side? 
Well, I mean, on, on China, I mean, my guess is that, you know, they've concluded that the tariffs have by and large, you know, been ineffective at changing the behavior they wanted to change, but politically they just can't eliminate them. Um, they would need to replace them with something else. And the question is, well, what is that? What is that other thing that they would do? Um, my guess is that there could be possibly larger but more targeted border measures on specific products of concern rather than on everything. And that would be coupled with domestic measures to support U.S. manufacturing of those products. And, and they would try to make sure that they were working in tandem. Um, I think that they'll likely use traditional trade measures as part of the approach. But I think another thing they're probably going to use is green policies. Uh, like origin neutral standards on things like carbon intensity, sustainability, anti-modern slavery. I mean, they've already started doing that with WROs, which uh, is a continuation of policy from the last team. And you know, they also signaled that they intend to use sustainability standards um, in the in the June report that they issued a hundred day report on the America Supply Chain EO. Um, I think that you know they'll probably. I think they'll they'll try to negotiate plurilaterals with like-minded countries. Um, I mean, they've already signaled that with carbon intensity on steel and aluminum, they're going to try to give that um, a go. Um, and you know, if you start with the EU, the US, Japan, the UK, potentially that's a good place to start. Um, I know a lot of folks are skeptical on that, but I've seen other efforts uh, underway, including one I'm working on with respect to solar, where. Um, I think that's going to be um, uh, a template that, that could be used uh, where it's origin neutral and it's for a really good reason, which is climate change, reducing, uh, mitigating climate change. Um, and um, I do think that on the carbon footprint side, they really need to work together with other countries because if you have different measures, which we're on target to have right now, that's going to cause major trade frictions. And for industry, I mean, you're going to have to figure out um, you'll have different documentation for different for different jurisdictions, potentially different certification schemes, different numbers, different benchmarks. Um, so hopefully, you know, like-minded countries will get together and try to work on that. Um, I also think that it would be good for the administration to pursue a multilateral agreement at the WTO to help achieve UN sustainable development goals. I think it's important to show that the WTO can tackle large global problems using trade tools. Um, and, um, I think there's a win-win there. Um, and I, and I, and I do think that, um, you know, the ambassador wants to try to, to, to show that the WTO can, um, can work. Um, and I think you have to find something where, um, there's interest on, on, on both developing and developed sides. Interesting. One of the things that I've been curious about and something that, you know, is, is, a new concept, I think, but this worker-centered trade policy. And I wondered, you know, we're hearing a lot of that from the administration and just wonder if you could offer some some thoughts on, you know, how you see that moving forward. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think it's a great concept. Uh, and I think it was partially reflected in the House Democrat counterproposal that helped seal the deal on USMCA. Um, you know, essentially, we need to ensure that U.S. workers are gaining from trade deals and it's not just a question of market access, it's market access plus. Mm -hmm. um, it's also about positioning US workers to, to gain from that market access and also be well positioned to handle changes in trade flows that may result from a new trade agreement. And in many cases, we know what those are gonna be in advance. Uh, 
again, I think the question on everyone's mind is, well, what else will encompass that kind of trade policy? Um, I think some of it could ultimately be a new trade agreements, but some of it will probably go into an eventual new TPA, uh, as well as implementing legislation that would accompany new agreements. Uh, for example, I think you know trade adjustment assistance isn't enough anymore. It's it's too reactive. Um, but I, I think what's slowing it down is the, obviously there's there's politics involved, but also you know USTR is going to have to go beyond its existing toolkit and work with tools from other agencies. And that's something that they haven't really done as much in the past. Um, but I think that you, you need a unified trade and competitiveness policy toolkit um, to make trade more effective. Um, and uh, I mean, I think you got, um, you know, a pretty, a pretty big vote on USMCA. Um, and um, there were some things in there that maybe I would have done differently, but we were able to get um, a, a consensus. And I think, so I think that's the way to go in the future. Got it. Thanks. Um, okay. So I think um, this has been really interesting, Jeff, and I've, I've, I've learned a lot from you and from this conversation. And I guess um, as we kind of wrap up our discussion, I had a couple last couple questions for you. Um, so if you could, you know, enlighten us, you know, again, you were a negotiator for, for quite some time. Do you have a, a story or some insight from one of like the most interesting or um, negotiations that you were a part of? Just something you like to share with, with our viewers? Well, I worked on a lot of different negotiations. Some of them were successful. Some were never completed. Um, probably a good thing they were never completed. Um, I'm really proud of creating the wine and distilled spirits provisions and TPP. Um, Thank you. So, um, baby. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, my last, my last negotiation was pretty interesting. Um, it was not an FTA. It was G20 talks on digital economy. And that was the first time we ever negotiated with, you know, the EU, China, and Russia on digital. Um, someone thought it was a good idea that we would all go in a room and have to come out with a consensus document in six months on cybersecurity, privacy, and data flows with China as the chair and the go-between between us and us and Russia. Um, and we couldn't even agree on terminology. Um, and so um, like what's cybersecurity, what's evidence-based decision-making? Um, and again, we, we don't agree. And so it was, it was interesting because it was the first time it was had ever been done and it was largely a defensive exercise to try to keep out language that you know could be used later. Um, but I, I think what was most surprising about it, about that example, is that some sometimes people are not aware that sometimes negotiators are sent into a room to negotiate a text when we know going in that we don't agree, right? Like the G20 situation. Um, and we have to find a way to paper over the differences and claim victory anyway, because that's what our political leadership is asking us to do. Mm -hmm. It is not a good practice in general, um, <laughs> because someone could, especially if it's binding and there's dispute settlement, someone is going to have to interpret that later. Um, but it does happen more often than you might think, um, where there's agreement to engage at a political level, but the career staff knows there's no path to agreement. Um, so the key is trying to keep, trying to educate the political leadership when they come in. There's a reason why that didn't work. <laughs> Please yeah. don't do it again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, th thank you for shining a little window on, on some of that and some of your experience. On that. 
you know, representing the U.S. government. Um, all right, so I've kept the last question, the most important one, you know, for our chat today. Um, do you have a favorite cocktail? If so, what is it? Well, I have an interesting story, um, and I won't I won't go into the the, the details, but there's a, there's a new spirit. Well, it's a new but old spirit that I've just started drinking called Sotol. And um, full disclosure, represent a distiller of that product, uh, Desert Door in uh, Driftwood, Texas. Um, and uh, it's new in the sense that the, the company's the, it's a it was a startup, and it's the first U.S. distiller of Sotol since Prohibition. But it's old in the sense that um, there's evidence that the Sotol plant, um, uh, which grows in Texas, New Mexico, and Ma Mexico, was first distilled in what's now Texas about a thousand years ago. So I wow. think it's like I think it's like that makes it the oldest spirit in North America. I think you 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 may you may know if, if anything else it's been distilled longer than that. Um, but I so I like it neat, but I also like it with um, grapefruit and lime juice and a little agave. Uh, at Desert Joy, they call it a Desert Paloma. Nice. Okay, I'll have to check that out. I'm not familiar with Sotol, so I'm going to have to do some research after after our chat. I've been in my attic office for two years. <laughs> So I'd really like to get out um, at some point and have a drink with someone. Um, hopefully my kids will get vaccinated soon. So I'll be able to do that. But I would actually love to get down to the distillery in Driftwood because um, I've been working with them on some regulatory issues. Um, it's right near Austin. Um, and it's a really interesting story because it was the, the, the startup. It was a project at University of Texas Business School. Um, they just had to come up with a with a with a concept, and it was three three veterans, former Marine, Navy SEAL, and and Army uh, Ranger, I think. Um, and they had to put a business plan together for class, and they realized, hey, this could actually work. Um, and within a couple of years, they became the largest distiller in the world of Sotol. Um, and it's just such a cool thing. And I just love to go out there and kind of harvest the plant with them, mm -hmm. uh, and go to the tasting room and. And 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 check it out again uh, at at the distillery. So I think that'd be really cool. Very cool. And nothing beats an actual distillery visit where you see it, you know, yeah. being made, you know, from the beginning all the way to the end. But obviously, in some cases, you have to wait, you know, several years before you can actually taste it uh, or see the final product, right? So. Yep. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast today and um, delve into some of these uh, deep, deep policy issues that you know are impacting um, you know many people's daily lives, in particular the supply chain and the trade issues and um, the spirits industry specifically. And at this critical juncture, as we're about to enter the holiday season. Um, you know, hopefully some of these things, some of your ideas and others that people are proposing can come to fruition so that we can, um, you know, have a more efficient um, system moving moving forward and address some of these big systemic problems that you, you've certainly uh, known about for quite some time, if maybe the rest of us haven't been as familiar with, with some of them. So thanks again, Jeff, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to see you again, Christine. Same here. Let's get together for a drink. And you can bring the Sotol. We can try it. Fantastic. Great. Thanks. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.